Thank you, Carol. Um, she always does the best introductions. I'm so delighted to be here. Um, if you've been here before, normally I, I do a talk about haiku, uh, a subject I just love. And um, um, I'm very interested in the usefulness of haiku, which is an image-based um, form of poetry for the fiction writer. Uh, it's, it's difficult to talk about imagery in terms of prose, and yet it's so essential. Haiku allows us to do that. So I feel like it's a natural slide from haiku, the notoriously short poem, to flash fiction, the notoriously short um, prose piece. So you, you're sure you can hear me? Okay. No, it's not on? Okay. Difference of opinion on the mic. Yeah, we're just going to turn it up a little. Okay. How's that? Better? Good. Yeah. All right. You didn't miss anything, believe me. <laughs> um, so, today we're going to talk about flash fiction. Who here has written flash fiction? Who here reads flash fiction? Okay, so it's a good half of the audience. Wonderful. Because I chose this topic. Um, I chose this topic because I know nothing about flash fiction. <laughs> and I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to educate myself um, using you guys as the resource. You really know you're getting old when your students come to you and talk about a, an entire genre, and, and your only response is, what's that? <laughs> and, and so I found myself in that situation, what's that? And, um, and I went looking for answers, and of course what I realized is that flash fiction has always been there and always been around me, and I've always read it, but it, I just didn't have a name for it. Um, like so many things you do in life, and you, you say, I didn't realize that was called X. Um, but it's nice that it has a name now. So anyway, I've, 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 I've decided to call this talk, talk uh, Flash Fiction. What is it? What do I do with it? What good is it? Right? And those are the questions we're going to be exploring. And hopefully we'll, we'll write a little Flash Fiction too. Okay. So what is it? So this is what I found when I actually started to sort of focus on the issue um, and, and read a, in a little bit uh, more organized way. Um, and there's a, a, a short answer and a long answer. And I'll give you the short answer first, which is, I still don't know. Right? I'm not sure. In part because um, definitions are both useful and after a certain point, not that useful. You don't want to over-define and limit your possibilities. What it appears to me is that flash fiction um, is like a river with a whole bunch of different um, tributaries. Some are even contradictory or unrelated. And so it carries many things inside itself, many possibilities. And you can pull from one source or from the other with a very different end result. Um, that, however, is the long answer, and we're going to spend our time with the long answer. Nobody's interested in the short answer. Um, so I can't really say what it is beyond the fact that it's a very short form of fiction. That's what everybody agrees on. It's short. 
right? Um, but that brevity is part of the ethos. Um, that shortness forces certain qualities on the writer. One, of course, is concision, right? Doing a lot with a little. Another is implication. Pointing to what's not there. Pointing what to what's outside of the story. Using the story to point to some larger story beyond the confines of the story. In other words, and I, I think of haiku this way too, it's utilizing the white space. In a certain sense, the flash fiction is about the white space around the fiction. Oh, um, my wife Karen Bender, who's also teaching this this week, put it better. We were both sort of um, um, stretched out waiting uh, this morning. We had just dropped the kids off at camp, and she was like, flash fiction, in flash fiction, the story is outside the story. The plot is outside the story. The story points to the plot, which is not included in the story. So it's very much about what isn't there, which is something we fiction lovers, uh, fiction writers absolutely love, right? I guess you, I, was a, I, I was sort of a, a mix. It was like, our, uh, we fiction lovers actually write. Yeah. So... Um, Concision, implication, simplicity, focus, fragmentation, a greater interpretive role for the reader. And that is part of um, the modernist trend in fiction dating from World War I, beginning with people like Hemingway, right? How do you give the reader more to do? How do you complicate the reader's engagement with the story? Flash fiction is a further step in that uh, endeavor. So the reader has to do a lot more reading in. Some flash fictions lean on imagery to do their work rather than plot, and they therefore feel closer to poetry. In fact, one of the tributaries that feeds the flash fiction river is the prose poem, right? Which, um, you know, um, often. Um, People point to the French poet Baudelaire, the 19th century poet Baudelaire, an early modernist, as somebody who took the prose poem and put it on its feet. Well, that leads directly to flash fiction. Right? Um, in a more concrete, pragmatic sense, right? I went on the web and I looked, how do, you, how do people define this in, in, in places where they... Um, publish flash fiction or, or, or a flash fiction contest, how does it get defined, right? One is the word count. It can be as low as 55 words. Think about it, if there are 250 words on a printed, on a, um, a manuscript page, that is short, right? But it can be as long as four pages. I have um, a book, uh, Flash Fiction Forward, um, which has stories easily um, four pages long. And that would include things that we just think of as the short story. Uh, John Cheever, a short story writer I love, has, has an, plenty of stories that would fit within that limit. Right? Um, so that's about a thousand words. And here's an interesting side, uh, yet another tributary of flash fiction. Right? Some flash fiction 
takes it from the other end and talks about flash, at, you know, something you can write in 20 minutes, something you can write in an hour, something you can write in one sitting. In other words, it's, more, it's a more process-oriented definition of what a short, a super short piece of fiction is. Something you write in 20 minutes, by definition, has to be extremely short. The end product will be short, but the definition is process-based. Right? And this is a different side of flash fiction that stresses the, the feeling of flash, like the flash on a camera, right? Spontaneity, improvisation, um, the expression of a moment, a side of things, right? And this is something that also um, can be seen in the haiku, right? The haiku as um, a record of the momentary experience something that's tied deeply to the particularity of experience, much like the snapshot was when we had the snapshot. Now we have the phone, you know, the picture on the phone has that feeling. Right. And behind that sort of, that, that emphasis on spontaneity is this feeling that, you know, the conventions of naturalistic fiction are constraining. Right? and should be bypassed, and that you will get some sort of truer, more emotional, more direct expression that way. So flash fiction that feeds from this sort of tributary, this sort of jazz stream, right, uh, often pushes against naturalism in some way. Okay. If that's what it is, where does it come from? Um, and there's where I found out, really, it's always been around. Um, it didn't have a label or a distinct identity, but it was here, right? A number of different creative streams converge with different histories and emphases. One is the tale, right? And, of course, the fairy tale and the folk tale are, are subdivisions of that. The short narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but does a lot of work with um, relatively few words, right? The parable. The parable is a short tale that has a clear moral to it, a takeaway. And of course, the New Testament is built up uh, largely out of parables. Oh, you see them in the Old Testament too, of course. Um, the fable, right? The fable is the tale starring an animal. Right? Now, now, the fable is basically any kid's movie, right? I, am, I have two kids. I am now, I, I go into the movies expecting them to star an animal. I'm disappointed when I see a person. <laughs> but here is another relative. These are all cousins, right? And yet another cousin is the joke. I have always felt there's a strong connection between the joke and the story, right? Almost like, you know, ape and human. And I'm not sure which is the ape and which is the human. Sometimes I feel the joke is the human and the story is the ape that is yearning to be a joke but can't find that clarity. Um, the joke is, a, is, is one source of the flash fiction. And of course, I already mentioned the prose poem, right? Tends to be more imagistic, more language-based, right? The, the turn that we expect from the story is often in the image. Now, after I'm after I'm sort of done babbling, we're going to look at some examples, and I have examples of all of these. 
Um, and then we're going to write some ourselves. So, so it'll, it should get um, genuinely interesting. And then there's the vignette. The vignette is something despised by the workshop instructor, right? It's the lowest, you know, it's the lowest insult that you give to a story writer. This is nothing but a vignette, right? And I have often done, I've often done that. This is nothing but a vignette. You know, out of my sight, vignette. And yet, when I, when I step back and ask myself, why do I despise the vignette? I'm not quite sure. I like the vignette, actually. The vignettes are interesting. It's what we talk about when we sit down with friends. We basically tell them little bits of our lives. And they have a certain natural integrity to them. Perhaps we mean that they're not as art artfully formed as the story. I'm not sure. But the vignette was um, beloved in the 19th century. You would get vignettes in the newspaper. And there would be, you know, a column for it, your, your daily vignette. And, um, and I'm sort of sorry that that's gone. I think newspapers would be better with them. Uh, yeah, and there's a fancy um, French term for this um, that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Um, so, um, the tale, the parable, the fable, the joke, the prose poem, the vignette, all of these are cousins in this family of, of which the, the flash fiction is a member. What makes it special? Why should I care? This is something I, this is the first thing I ask my students instead of what is it, right? It's like, I, I didn't want to, you know, you, you get to be a teacher after a while, you don't admit that you don't know something. So it's like, what, why is that important? Well, and what I found by mucking around with it and writing some myself is that um, they, they really bring some beautiful kinds of discipline to the writing process. One is brevity, right? Which is something we always talk about in, in short fiction, even in the novel, right? To make it as short as it possibly can be. That rule of great craftsmanship, the love of concision, doing the most with the least, right? That, um, you see that in the visual arts as well. Um, brevity, the, the elusive, open-ended quality, right? The lack of conventional furniture. I, um, I, I often feel that the, the, the big naturalistic novel can just be weighed down with that sort of... Um, I had a, a professor here when I went to the, um, the writer's workshop called it abject naturalism, this idea that naturalistic details need to be in there just to make it feel natural, like it's really happening. And then after a while, you get so tired of people lifting glasses and lighting cigarettes and doing all this business, which is just meant to remind you that you're in a naturalistic novel, that you want to swipe that all clean. You want to wipe the box clean so that, and just have a nice white room where something important can happen. Flash fiction allows that because it doesn't offer the space or the time. You can't get the Biedermeyer furniture in there. Right. Um, another great thing about flash fiction is the way it challenges our idea of what makes a story. How much can be left out? You know, it gets us to... Um, Oh, I can walk with this. How great. Um, 
Hemingway started this process really um, in the um, in the twenties with his famous iceberg approach, right? That most of the story is hidden below the waterline. It's not in the story, right? Yeah. Just like an iceberg, most of the iceberg floats below the waterline. That's why you hit, ships hit them. Nobody hits what the, you can see, right? They they hit out here um, below the waterline. So he was saying a story is the same way, right? Most of the story is actually outside the story. It's either in backstory or post story. It's what the writer's job is to find a flame, which implies the larger story using the smallest moment possible, right? And of course, the writer needs to know everything else, too. That sense of authority, the authority that comes with that knowledge, powers the part of the story that's visible. So he's, he's doing, um, in the 1920s, he's doing stories of, that are a single scene, like Hills Like White Elephants is an example I always like to mention. You know, extraordinary, a single, single moment in a train station outside of Madrid, um, two people arguing about something that's never mentioned. And the story is really in the white space, the unspoken area, right? Um, the same way, he, but we're, the thing is that we're now comfortable with Hemingway. It takes a little bit of work to see how radically new he is at all times. Flash fiction sort of re, recharges that same um, argument that he's making, right? It allows us to see it from a new angle. And then, of course, there's a great sense of freedom, right? Because it's flash. It's about spontaneity. It's short. You could do 10 a day if you wanted. There's some value in that, right? Not being married to the execution of a complex idea, right? In and out. Okay, so what do I do with it, right? Well, it's a great way to explore the boundaries of storytelling, right? How little still gives that story feeling. Well, you know, I like to think of story in terms of a turn. If we say story is about change, right? I like to call it the turn because change can be, you know, as can can be perceptual as well as it's important to remember that change doesn't simply happen on the level of plot or event, right? Um, it can happen in consciousness and perception. So if the light in the garden is falling on the camellia bush in the morning and it's falling on the azalea bush in the evening, right? Um, that has a sense of turn that, we, that can power a story, right? It also um, makes us think about process, right? It's freeing, it's inspiring. Uh, it allows experiment. It stresses the value of experiment as opposed to, in other words, it stresses process over product, which I think is an important thing um, that what, uh, we need to remember whatever we're writing, even if you're involved in an extremely long project, a novel, a, a trilogy of novels, ultimately the process 
is more important than than the product. Otherwise, you're going to get the product itself is going to suffer by valuing the the process. You are going to assure the best writing possible, right? You can use them, as a matter of fact, to start something longer. You can even make series out of them. It's fascinating. Um, and build something large out of discrete pieces. That's something that's very natural to Japanese poetry, right? The, the haiku is really just <coughs> broken off from the linked verse sequence, right? So you can put them back together and create a sequence of haiku. And you can do the same with flash fiction. It's incredible. Um, how do you do one? Well, we're going we're gonna to do at least one uh, today. I can see the time dribbling away. But you, know, you can start with a moment. You can start with a what if. You can start with a formal idea. Um, infinite possibilities. And I love that about them. That, that, that sense of playfulness. Setting yourself a problem and just writing five of them writing one a day for a week, seeing um, what, that, what that stimulates. You may get a larger story from them. right? Well, this one is so good, I want to expand it into a story. Or this one is so good, it's the first chapter of a novel. You can also go, uh, you know, trace back to the, um, the, that prose poetry tributary and just build around an image. Often, they simply work around an image, which is... Great. I've always wanted to be that kind of um, that kind of writer. I've had students who are just sort of these very sort of can write sort of uh, a short story based around an image, and I've always tried to do that and come up, you know, with like the flat souffle. I don't know why, but anyway, let's look at some examples to make this a little more concrete. So look at your sheet. Uh, handouts. I think Amy's got some. Oh, Matt's got some here. Matt's got lots of them. And what you'll see is that I, he I have here about a half a dozen examples. But only one of them was self-consciously written as a flash fiction, a quote-unquote flash fiction. Franz Kafka died long before we anybody coined the term, right? Uh, a Story About the Body is by Robert Haas, and it's a prose poem, really. Though if I didn't tell you that, um, you, you, pro you might not know. You would just say, oh, a nice flash fiction. Um, Ernest Hemingway was just messing around. Um, the the, um, the the lore is that it was written on a, a, a um, as a dare in a bar. What's the shortest short story you can write? That's what people say. You never know what's true. He was such a he was such a self mythologizer, and then of course people like to mythologize around him. You know, he's like the Chuck Norris of um, <laughs> of fiction. My my son worships Chuck Norris without ever having seen a Chuck Norris movie. If he, I, I want him to see one just so he'll stop it. <laughs> There's nothing as deflating of the Chuck Norris myth as, as seeing a Chuck Norris movie. Um, so here's the first one. 
Hemingway, right? For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Right? Uh, just wipe away the tear. And is it a, is it a story? I'm, I'm curious. I, somebody, yeah. You couldn't ask for more typically Hemingway than that. Why? For sale, baby shoes, never worn. The, the running theme through most of Hemingway's fiction is life is unfair. Uh-huh. And full of loss. Yeah. That, um, I love that. Um, there's that other very short Hemingway story, My Old Man, and it ends with this just beautiful line. Does anybody know it? I, I, I can only paraphrase it. When they, when they get you down, they take everything. That is just such a typical Hemingway line. You know, they take everything. But is it too short to be a story? This, yeah. <clears throat> this is just a backstory to one scene, maybe. It could have been used. It reads almost like a first line. How many versions of what's uh, beneath the surface can there be? Uh, it, you know, does, does the story have to be? Hills Like White Elephants, for example, I think leads to a kind of common conclusion. Plus this. this leads to a multiplicity of possibilities. So is it too many possibilities? How much exercise... How much control does the writer have to exercise over the reader's response or experience? It definitely brings up that question. Is it too open-ended? I honestly included this because I have no idea. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued by these questions. I don't have an answer. On some days I figure it's enough. On some days I figure, you know, it's not enough. I want something more substantial. It can read like a first line, but... I'm glad we have these questions. Um, one thing I like about this is that it's built around an object, and that's something that you see flash fiction doing. An evocative object, baby shoes. And they are intense. Anybody who's had children knows the baby shoe is just like, you might as well just hand yourself a, somebody a clock. It's all about the passage of time, and it's about that... Um, the vulnerability of children. I remember when our first son was born, um, he couldn't walk, and we were like, he needs shoes. I was like, why exactly? We went in, and we didn't have much money, but we went in and bought him the most expensive leather shoes. You could possibly buy a baby. He was walking around with $100 shoes. But I had, you know, holes in my shoes. But he needed to crawl in those red leather shoes. So hugely evocative. That use of the evocative object, very common for the flash fiction. Now, here is a longer story that is that is was written as a flash fiction. Interestingly, right, to me, it reads as the most conventional of all I have on this sheet. Right? It's a little long, so read along with me, but I'll read out loud. Um, the wig. My eight-year-old son found a wig in the garbage dumpster this morning. I walked into the kitchen highly irritated that I couldn't make a respectable knot in my green paisley tie. And there he was at the table, eating cereal and reading the funnies. The wig pulled tightly over his hair like a football helmet. The wig was a dirty bush of curly blonde hair, the kind you might see on a prostitute or someone who was trying to imitate Marilyn Monroe. I asked him where he got the wig, and he told me, his mouth full of cereal. 
When I advised him that we do not wear things we find in the garbage, he simply continued eating and reading as if he didn't hear me. I wanted him to take that wig off, but I couldn't ask him to do it. I forgot all about my tie and going to work. Um, I looked out the window where a mist fell slowly on the street. I paced into the living room and back, trying to hard, trying hard not to look at my son. He ignored me. I could hear him munching cereal and rustling paper. There was a picture, or a memory, real or imagined, that I couldn't get out of my mind. Last spring, before the accident, my wife was sitting in the chair where now my son always sits. She was reading the paper to see how the Blackhawks did the night before, and her sleep must hair was only slightly longer and darker than the hair of my son's wig. I wondered whether my son had a similar picture in his head, or if he had a picture at all. I watched him, and he finally looked up at me, but his face was blank. He went back to his reading. I walked around the table, picked him up, and held him against my chest. I pressed my nose into that wig, and it smelled not like the clean shampoo scent I might have been hoping for, but like old lettuce. I suppose it didn't matter at that point. My son put his smooth, arm, his smooth arms around my neck, and for maybe a few seconds, we were together again, the three of us. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, it's almost a response to the Hemingway story. He said, let me do this. I'm substituting a different evocative object. Instead of the shoes, we have the wig. Right? But he's also coming at it from... It's, it's like Hemingway meets Dubliners. Who here has read the, the James Joyce collection, Dubliners? It is a touchstone of modernist fiction. In Dubliners, Joyce introduced, as if he didn't, and then he went on to write Ulysses, of course, right? So, uh, you know, why get out of bed in the morning? But in Dubliners, he introduced the idea of the epiphany, right? And this is now a central uh, concept of contemporary fiction. The epiphany is a moment of heightened awareness or understanding. In, in, in the mind of a character, the narrative is basically there to um, create or enable the epiphany. Right? So here, he says, it's like we're, the three of us are together again. My son is, is, is bringing the memory of, of my wife back to me so that I can stay connected even as I mourn, instead of treating her simply as an absence or repressing the memory. The son brings it back up so that uh, they're present as a triangle again through the memory. Right? That is the epiphany. Right? So it's basically treating the same problem as the Hemingway line as an epiphany story. In a way, it's totally conventional. It uses um, um, a single scene, concrete detail, an evocative object. Um, I think there, you, could, you could chart this for you know, an inciting incident, conflict, climax, and resolution. You could put it on a Freitag diagram. Um, all the junk we like to use in, in workshop, and which I like to use, but also pretend to look down on. Um, 
very, very conventional. You could say this isn't, except for its length, you could say this is just a short story. Or a scene in a larger story. Because I, I see you, you are a, a want more guy. <laughs> well, you're saying, you know, really, isn't this just a scene in some larger narrative? And you could make that argument. And some of this has to do with your tolerance for, for implication in white space. Um, I'm more like you. But that's why I find flash fiction challenging and interesting. Because it runs a counter to my natural proclivities to say more. You know, I like saying more. I like building out scenes. That's why I'm, I'm a novelist. Um, and yet, for that reason alone, it's good to remind myself how much one scene can do. So that you're always asking the question, do I really need four scenes? Can I, can I do with three? I was just going to say, but it also speaks, his reaction even speaks to the quality of the execution because it's already, it's, it's strongly implied that another huge story below the surface. I mean, in simple ways, and we know that they live in Chicago, we know that it's less than a year since the wife died, we know the age and kind of something even about It's absolutely true. You could see in a more conventional story, um, you would maybe have a flashback to some earlier point in his mourning process, right? When, or to the accident itself, if you if you really had a taste for the corny, you know, um, you could definitely build this out. And the question is, do you need to build it out? And I could see different writers. Um, landing on different sides of that question. No, it's, it's, it's full in itself. Or yes, I want more. But it's, it's interesting to experience that, uh, that question. It's a question you should be asking yourself regardless of the scale you're working on. Let's keep going. A story about the body. The young composer working that summer at an artist colony had watched her for a week. She was Japanese, a painter, almost 60, and he thought he was in love with her. He loved her work, and her work was like the way she moved her body, used her hands, looked at him directly when she made amused or considered answers to his questions. One night, walking back from a concert, they came to her door, and she turned to him and said, I think you would like to have me. I would like that too, but I must tell you I have had a double mastectomy. So there's a big asterisk there. Um, and when he didn't understand, I've lost both my breasts. The radiance that he had carried around in his belly and chest cavity, like music, withered very quickly, and he made himself look at her when he said, I'm sorry, I don't think I could. He walked back to his own cabin through the pines, and in the morning he found a small blue bowl on the porch outside his door. It looked to be full of rose petals, but he found when he picked it up that the rose petals were on top. The rest of the bowl... She must have swept them from the corners of her studio, was full of dead bees. Right. So, if I didn't tell you this was, in fact, that Robert Haas was a poet and that this was a prose poem, if I had simply included this in a flash fiction anthology, you would have no trouble saying flash fiction. But it's clearly image-based, right? It de-emphasizes the narrative 
Uh, it de-emphasizes scene, even though there is dialogue. And it, it, it allows the image at the end of the bowl of beads to do the work. Now, decoding that image is both straightforward and complex. Anyone? What is it? Rose petals with bees underneath. What does that do for you? Somebody take a stab. <laughs> so what is it? What, what is the message she is Oh, so it's a statement of emotion. I, I used to be, I used to be like a bee, but now I don't feel that anger. So that your rejection doesn't hurt me. That's a very interesting take. Yeah. So you're reading it differently, which is to say, oh, on the contrary, it still hurts because these, these, a, these animals that represent fecundity are now gone. I am no longer um, the, the, the fully fecund body that I once was. Oh, so Betty, wait, go ahead. Oh, okay, so it's a statement not about herself, but about him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. So it's the duality of her selfhood. Again, a statement about her. Who else had the hand up? Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's a statement of anger, right? I would love to give you a sting, yeah. I just think, since she's an artist, I think certain things are just hard to put in words. Right. And it's a, it's a visual image that she's presenting. Right. Absolutely. And so that what you're saying by implication is that we respond to images, right? But... Decoding an image always lessens the image. So that, uh, it's like that old Zen thing, right? The finger pointing to the moon, right? Zen is, is, is not the finger, right? Yeah. The finger is just pointing. Um, and we have, to be, we have to remember that the image is something much larger than any interpretation we can create. Amy, did you have your hand up? Right. And so it could be any of those things. And 
Uh-huh. That is a beautiful way to look at it. What, what we're really talking about is the complexity of this little bit of prose. 100, 150 words, maybe? Um, and yet it seems to, if, if you follow Amy's interpretation, right, it's got a narrative within a narrative. It's handing you another story at the end. And um, some, some readers have said the bowl is, is about herself. Others have said the bowl is, is a statement about him and his attraction, the superficiality of it, right? Um, Amy is saying the, the bowl is whatever he makes of it. And the further, if we could continue, the further question is, well, what's his understanding of it, right? And that's what resonates in the white space beyond the ending. Uh, I don't know, with my friend Amy, who was in the weekend thing with me, that the narrator is the woman, the narrator is clearly a third person. But the woman goes out of her way to put this bowl on his door to make sure he gets a message. Instead of everybody opining about it, why don't we take a vote of serving? Ah, because I don't want it settled. I don't want it settled. What, um, I guess one reason why I included this is because this is a, a genuine strain, one of the tributaries that feeds the flash fiction um, genre, right? The image-based fiction. But um, it's also one that I find incredibly rich because the image short-circuits the brain, right? And speaks to us in this extremely complex yet telegraphed way. And we could sit here all day and talk about this, and I would gladly do that. Um, but we need to move on. Okay. Um, the next is called A Little Fable. It's by Franz Kafka, the great modernist innovator. Um, I bet everybody is familiar with his work. He's, he's omnipresent in what we do as fiction writers now. Um, but this is a little one. Let's read it. Alas, said the mouse, the world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already. And there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into, right? You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. <laughs> For me, this relates to the joke. It's, it has that, that thing, right, oh, it's got the perfect turn that we want in the story. And it's not, it doesn't resolve easily to one meaning. You can say, oh, you know, you can do the easy thing, which is say, wow, the existential joke of existence, you know, uh, life is so frightening, but then you're dead, and that doesn't seem to be an improvement. Um, and, that, and it has that appointment in Samara aspect, right? Whether you run straight ahead or you run back, you're going to end up in the same place, so why rush? Um, And I, I, I've always felt that the joke is 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 a is a, an important relative of the story, and that in fact, if you if you took any book, any novel, or even something like 
proofs in search of lost time, right? Seven volumes, you'd have to hold it like this. I'm sure you could boil it down to a single pithy joke. And that, that would be... That would be great for somebody to do. I would just like, my, my son likes these joke books, right? So if you just had like um, world literature and 21 jokes. <laughs> so, and, and I think Kafka really got that, that the joke is, is, is a mystery. And that's why we, we laugh because we, we're, we're in awe of the mystery. And for that reason, I want to tell you my favorite joke, which I always give in workshop because, uh, to me, it, it, it describes what fiction is and what it does, right? And, uh, and my son Jonah told me this, so I got it from a good source. <laughs> Skeleton walks in a bar, sits down on a bar stool, orders a beer and a mop. <laughs> That is any, any piece of fiction. That is all it is, right? Somebody walks into a situation and wants something, has a desire. That desire will have consequences, and they will be messy. <laughs> Knowing that it's going to be a mess doesn't want you, make you want it any less. And that's why, that's how life happens, that's how fiction happens. And that's why, and flash fiction, because of its shortness, stays very close to that joke essence of fiction. Except, um, let's take a look at this last one, right? It's slightly longer. I, I think what it's going to do is basically eliminate our ability to write one. But I, I like my, my writing prompt so much, I'm going to tell it to you before we leave. And maybe you can go off and use it. Um, and this moves you can see the joke inside but it moves a little past it to something else some sort of grand philosophical allegory um, and yet again it's, it's always just out of reach so let's read it the imperial message the emperor so they say has sent a message directly from his deathbed to you alone his pathetic subject a tiny shadow which has taken refuge at the furthest distance from the imperial sun. He ordered the herald to kneel down beside his bed and whispered the message in his ear. He thought it was so important that he had the herald speak it back to him. He confirmed the accuracy of verbal message by nodding his head. And in front of the entire crowd of those witnessing his death, all the obstructing walls have been broken down, and all the great ones of his empire are standing in a circle on the broad and high soaring flights of stairs. In front of all of them, he dispatched his herald. The messenger started off at once, a powerful, tireless man. Sticking one arm out and then another, he makes his way through the crowd. If he runs into resistance, he points to his breast, where there is a sign of the sun. So he moves forward easily, unlike anyone else. But the crowd is so huge. Its dwelling places are infinite. If there were an open field, how he would fly along, and soon you would hear the marvelous pounding of his fist on your door. But instead of that, how futile are all his efforts. He is still forcing his way through the private rooms of the innermost palace. Never will he win his way through. And if he did manage that, nothing would have been achieved. 
He would have to fight his way down the steps, and if he managed to do that, nothing would have been achieved. He would have to stride through the courtyards, and after the courtyards through the second palace, encircling the first, and then again through stairs and courtyards, and then once again a palace, and so on for thousands of years. And if he finally burst through the outermost door, but that can never, never happen. The royal capital city, the center of the world, is still there in front of him. Piled high and full of sediment, no one pushes his way through here, certainly not someone with a message from a dead man. But you sit at your window and dream of that message when evening comes. So, it's a story about an absence, a story about silence. It's um, a story about, you know that old one, writer, they, writing teachers love to tell you, write about what you know. And it's true. But, um, you know, whenever I'm teaching, I like the other truism, right? I like to remind myself of the other side, which is that here Kafka has written a story about what you don't know. The message is not defined in any way. Ultimately, the story is about waiting, right? Waiting for the message, that feeling we have um, that there's a message coming and we don't know what it is. But once it comes, everything will change. And that reminds me of um, a famous Kafka quote, which is that life is a distraction that does not allow you to know what you are being distracted from, right? And of course, what you're being distracted from in waiting for the message is the message itself, which somehow resonates around the white space of the story. Interesting, interesting aside, I'm blanking on the title now, um, but I read a fascinating book about Kafka's... Um, Jewish influences. Uh, it's in the Next Book Encounter series. You'd find it there. Um, if you Google Next Book Encounter, uh, it's, it's called Jewish Encounters. Um, a lot of great books there. But um, I had never thought of, of him explicitly within the Jewish tradition. I had, I had thought he had pushed his, had tried to distance himself from that. Actually, um, uh, one influence is for him was the Hasidic tale. Right, which is very much in the sort of the parable tradition, uh, sort of a mysterious tale, which then pulls out a moral. Right, and it's a much. It's, they tend to be very beautiful, but a little more blunt than this. This takes the Hasidic tale and moves it into the modernist stream, so that the moral is on its way, but hasn't arrived. I don't know what it is, um, and then you're you're in the middle of waiting for Godot, aren't you? Right, you're with Beckett. Um, the moral is coming. The moral is coming. Um, where is the moral? Um, I don't know. So you know, want some tea? What's you know? And then of course you have Seinfeld. <laughs> this is what makes Seinfeld, you know, possible. Robert, yeah. You want a religious since you brought up this Jewishness? A religious interpretation of this would be the emperor is God. Uh -huh. That is a perfectly, that is an excellent interpretation. 
And yet, I feel like it's more than that. I, in a way, I think that is one that pulls it back sort of into um, the, the Hasidic tradition, though um, that would be problematic because I think uh, an observant Jew might also say, well, the message is here, it's the Torah. Um, and so that sort of places him to the side of, of, of traditional Jewish thinking. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say it's like this labyrinth in that yeah. you're wandering through the corridors of the palace trying to find your way out, and you can somehow never seem to get out. You know, in the reverse, like you think of Thesis and Ariadne. Uh-huh. Uh, he's trying to get inside the labyrinth in order, and he has this little thread, and she holds it up on the outside, and he's wandering through so he can find his way out. He finds the Minotaur. Totally, and of course, Kafka is writing at the same time as, J as James Joyce, who's not that far away in Trieste, um, and explicitly draws on these, on, on these ideas of the labyrinth, the maze, the puzzle, right? But writes voluminously. And it's interesting, two men are sort of engaging with the same modernist project, one using lots and lots of words, one using a very few. Yes? Spark notes for the castle. <laughs> Absolutely, it, it's 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 true, and you see that writers often do this. They practice. They 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 use different forms um, and try out material in different ways. It's like um, a stand-up comic going into one kind of comedy club, and then you know a small one, and then a big arena. You try different forms. In the same way here, you know, Kafka is experimenting with the novel. He's experimenting with the fable or the tale. Um, uh, the metamorphosis is 40 pages long, so he's comfortable at that length as well. He's doing it in all different ways. And, of course, as, as writers, that's what I would encourage you guys to do, too. Try it in all different ways. But um, the, flash, the flash fiction should definitely be one of those options. I can see we're nearing our end time. I quickly want to give you my, my writing prompts, even though we won't have time to actually write them or read them. But um, I just like this. I actually wrote, um, I wrote a short story. I, and I, believe me, this is not original. I, I thought it was original, and then subsequently I went out and saw just how ignorant I was and that 100 people had done this. I wrote... Um, a series of footnotes to a memoir. But I didn't write the memoir itself. Just, just the footnotes, right? 
So you, it's like you flip to the, I love doing this, right? You go into a library or a bookstore and you open up somebody's big bio and you just read the footnotes and I feel like I've gotten the story in this very interesting sideways way. So my prompt is write five footnotes to an imaginary memoir. And the challenge is to use those five to create a recognizable story arc with a beginning, a middle, and end so that you get that story feeling, like there's been a turn, something has happened. But footnotes, as we know, are, are short, they're fragmentary, and they reference outward to a text that you don't have in front of you. So it works just like, it works just in the way that flash fiction should. The plot is outside the story, right? It allows you to be, say, more anecdotal, right? So they can be vignettes, they can be images, and uh, they can contain dialogue or have mini-scenes. And you just line up five of them. And you realize, the one I did, um, I think I had 15. But you could stack them. You could write a novel that way, a novel in footnotes. Uh, I bet you I'll leave here and, and Google and find out that somebody has. Right? Uh, is that true? Really? What's it called? And it's entirely in footnotes? Not entirely, but most of the fun is in footnotes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and of course, you know, you read Infinite Jest, most of the fun is in the footnotes, too. Um, but just in footnotes, that would be fun. So, give it a try. If I run into you during the week, I'd love to hear what you've written. So, so you know, I'm curious whether it comes to anything for you. Otherwise, thank you for, for listening and participating, and I hope, you know, it's been of use and you go out and write some flash fiction if you haven't yet.